0: I am now joined by Michael Green, portfolio manager and chief strategist at Simplify Asset Management, who currently offers 21 ETFs, about $1.5 billion in assets, which is pretty remarkable given their first ETFs only launched about two years ago. Uh, They're building out very quickly. And I've said this before, I think Simplify is one of the more intriguing ETF issuers out there because of the way they're approaching the market. I feel like they're truly trying to bring unique products to investors. They're not launching a Me Too or Cookie Cutter products. This is an innovative shop with a very seasoned leadership team, including Michael, who is now on the line with me from New York. Michael, it's an absolute pleasure to connect. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Oh, Thank you very much. I appreciate the invite.
0: All right, so just by way of uh, background, how did you end up partnering with uh, Simplify? I I mentioned this at the top of the podcast. I think many of our listeners are certainly familiar with you and your professional experience, which is quite impressive. How did you end up aligning with Simplify? Well,
1: uh, Simplify, um, I actually knew Anthony Bassett well. He and I had been close friends for well over a decade. He flagged for me in January of 2021 Uh, the incredible opportunity that existed um, with the derivative rule change, right? So there were some regulatory framework changes, and, you know, those who are familiar with my work know this is something I spend an awful lot of time on. Paul Kim, who is founder of Simplify, was even more in tune with this, recognized that the change in the regulatory framework was created with what's called the derivative rule in September of 2020, that allows the inclusion or at least allow the systematic and, and uh, formulaic inclusion of derivative strategies within ETFs was a real game changer in terms of allowing ETFs to become hedgy in their expression. Right? Um, they actually have advantages versus hedge funds in large part due to sufficient ETF strategies and Harley highlighted this for me. The minute I saw it, I was like, oh, my God, this is absolutely incredible. This suddenly allows many of the derivative overlay strategies that I've been involved with in the past to move from being peripheral parts of the portfolio, competing for 3% allocations of portfolios, to being core components of portfolios. And, you know, so competing for the 40%, 50 60 70%. And you mentioned in our ETF business, we really have looked at it from the standpoint of how do we build out a suite of products that allow investors to incorporate our strategies and our approaches across their overall portfolio. The objective being to create portfolios that have unique hedging characteristics to them, unique profile characteristics in an environment in which it's becoming increasingly questionable whether you know, the Fed put exists, for example, where bonds in a 60-40 type framework might not protect portfolios in the same way. The ability to do that within the tax-efficient wrapper of an ETF just is a real game-changer. And, and I would argue that we're going to end up seeing many hedge fund strategies begin to migrate towards ETFs over time. feels like we've gotten ahead of that curve, and, and we're really fortunate that you know Paul's eyes were open. And I'm thrilled to be part of a team that is, in my view, executing better than any I've ever been part of before.
0: All right, so perfect segue here. Now, among other things, you are the portfolio manager on the Simplify Macro Strategy ETF, ticker FIG, F-I-G. Which, What does that stand for, uh, FIG?
1: It actually doesn't stand for anything, although uh, the, the, the um, w- one of the more fun things about doing ETFs is trying to pick up clever, uh, clever tickers. So we have products like CTA and CYA. Um, and CYA stands for Cover Your Assets, shall we say. Um, CPA is, you know, targeting the commodity trading advisor market. So we've been really fortunate. Again, you know, the genius behind individuals like Paul and others who have selected us. My Twitter handle uh, is Professor Plum, and so Fig is literally a play on. Plum.
0: I got it. All right, I love that. All right. So, Michael, I, at the top of the podcast, crudely described this as a uh, significantly souped up asset allocation ETF. I'm going to let you uh, much more eloquently explain the strategy here. This is actively managed by you. Just explain what's going on uh, within the ETF.
1: Sure. So so our core objective is to provide an alternative to a 60-40 bond portfolio and take advantage of all the features of ETFs that I just mentioned. So, we choose to access markets in a way that allows us to add a little bit of leverage to that portfolio. So we can, while simultaneously putting much less at work, we have the full equity portion of that portfolio. We've chosen alternative income streams. So instead of bonds, or in many cases, instead of bonds, we've chosen um, uh, volatility premium through various simplified products, et cetera. It allows us to run a portfolio that has a significantly protected downside so for example today is a significant outperformance day while at the same time allowing us to preserve access to the upside participation in markets right so equities for example we're taking advantage of the ability to use derivatives we on long dated in money call options 500 in lieu of the 60 of the portfolio right full performance with as little as 7 to 8% allocated towards it. I can increase my allocation significantly, but only to 60%. In a traditional portfolio, the most I can lose is the premium that I options. So we're, we're taking advantage of tools like that. We're also taking advantage of other products that we've introduced within the simplified Suite, things like our interest rate hedges in the form of PFIX. Um, that allows us to access a fixed income portion of the portfolio or to put a, a heavy weight in fixed income portfolios as we're actually beginning to see the, um, the, the interest rate, the real interest rate that is available in markets become increasingly attractive. And It's one of the things I would kind of emphasize for people is if we go back three to four months ago, you would have faced a situation where the effective real yield on bonds was terrible. Today, we've reoriented the portfolio so that we didn't have exposure to bonds. Now we're actually increasingly exposing the portfolio to bonds and bond participation. That's the benefit of the active management component. We're able to look at a current environment, restructure the portfolio, and do all of that within an ETF structure that shields the tax ramifications that you would encounter if you were to try to trade those individually in anything other than a tax-advantaged account.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned PFIC, so that's the Simplify Interest Rate Hedge ETF. Just to give listeners a flavor, I want to go through a few of the other holdings here. So there's the Simplify Aggregate Bond Plus Credit Hedge ETF, ticker AGGH. Simplify High Yield Plus Credit Hedge uh, ETF, ticker CDX. The Simplify managed Future Strategy ETF, ticker CTA. You have the, uh, the Simplify Volatility Premium ETF, ticker SVOL. There's the Simplify Risk Parity Treasury ETF, TYA. There is some gold uh, via the iShares Gold Trust. And then you, you mentioned the, uh, the the puts and calls. And I, I just want to be clear. I, th- I think you were hitting on this. But as I understand it, Simplify does view this ETF as a uh, total portfolio solution, correct? This could theoretically replace a traditional 60-40 portfolio allocation.
1: Theoretically, that's what it's supposed to be able to do. That is what we're benchmarking it against. And again, the reason why we um, incorporate all of those products, we couldn't really launch a product like this until we were able to take advantage of that. And importantly, within kind of the dynamic of low fees or aggregate of overall low fees, because we're working within a portfolio family of simplified products, we do not have to pass through the incremental fees associated with those. So the net impact of those fees is all that you're experiencing. So, you know, you pay the fee for FIG, you're not in turn paying an additional management fee for the sub-advisory effectively that's occurring within s as you mentioned, or CTA or CDX. And so that's, a, again, an advantage in, uh, that you have within a family of funds. I couldn't do the same thing if I was putting it out to other institutions. Part of the objective behind FIG is to provide, or the macro strategy is to provide investors with access to that in a managed form without incurring the additional fees and costs associated with it.
0: And on the note of FIG potentially uh, being a replacement for a traditional 60-40 portfolio, can you just talk a little bit more about the overall macro environment? And I know we, we could spend you know hours discussing this, but it's pretty clear the backdrop has changed, right? That's, that's not enlightening. We have inflation at you know, 40-year highs. You have the Fed hiking rates. We have a war over in Ukraine. There's a lot going on. So can you perhaps talk about, uh, you know, that backdrop and maybe how it colors your view that the traditional 60-40 portfolio might be challenged moving forward?
1: So so, so absolutely. Um, One of the more interesting things, again, is how much we've seen that outlook shift in just the past five months. So you talk about a whole bunch of stuff going on. When we initially created this product and the structure behind it and our initial launch, our our general belief was that bonds were relatively unattractive, right? And that yields were low relative to the risks of inflationary conditions that we were experiencing. As a result, we did an awful lot of substitution to not be exposed to that bond component by and large that worked to our advantage. However, today we're looking at a completely different environment where the Fed has very aggressively raised rates. We're actually seeing that reflected in forward measures of inflation. So, most listeners won't have access to the indices of the tickers that would that would indicate this, but if you look at something like a 1-year forward inflation break-even, in other words, the market's best expectation for that contract using TIPS, Treasury inflation-protected securities, It's now suggesting that inflation is fully expected to retreat to 2% within a year. Um, We're creating significant tightening of financial conditions. We're creating an incredible opportunity, in my view at least, to begin to look at things like longer-duration bonds, which in real terms are suddenly offering yields that are nearly unmatched barring extreme um, uh, crisis scenarios, you know that are they're effectively unmatched over the last decade, really. So we're 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 looking at a 30-year bond um, on a real yield basis that's suddenly approaching
0: 1%.
1: That's actually historically a great yield, um, and you can complain about the dynamics of of inflation measures of CPI, et cetera. But it's very difficult to do that and then turn around simultaneously and quote CPI and say, look how high inflation is. So I just think it's it's one of the things that's worth emphasizing is is that, broadly speaking, people don't realize how much bonds have begun to become attractive investments in just a very, very short period of time. The second thing that I would highlight about the macro situation is, is that same underlying feature, that assault on inflation that's being led by the Fed and is very much being reflected in forward pricing of inflation securities um, is really beginning to hit Europe and Japan. And you know, so I actually am just coming off of a macro panel um, where I and others have begun to introduce the idea that what we're actually seeing in Europe and Japan is something that is very reminiscent of an emerging market crisis, where the terms of trade have turned markedly against Europe. Right, the simplest way of thinking about Europe is they import energy from Russia and they export manufactured goods to the rest of the world, in particular China, a lot of capital goods from places like, like uh, Germany. Those terms of trade have flipped violently against them. And today they are suddenly faced with a situation where the increase in, in uh, energy prices threatens to undermine their very business model um, to give some idea of the leverage that's embedded in that The historical relationship with Germany and and Russia was somewhere around $30 billion worth of natural gas imports, supported around $2 trillion of capital goods and manufacturing exports. That system is in the process of unwinding the U.S.'s behavior in terms of hiking interest rates to target inflation is now starting to spread around the world, and Europe and Japan are being forced to respond not to deal with the underlying inflationary characteristics in their economy, but to deal with the need to protect their currency. to prevent a wholesale exodus um, from these regions that would be reminiscent of a 1997 Asian crisis, et cetera. I think this is a really hard thing for people to generally appreciate, and you see it in the behavior of things like the yen, which historically has been a safety currency, now weakens in response to markets going risk-off. You're seeing the same behavior in the euro, et cetera. This is a real change, and it's among the most complicated macro environments I've ever seen My biggest fear is is that having failed to anticipate the significant increase in inflation that occurred over the last 12 months, that we now see central bankers around the world failing to anticipate the recessionary conditions that are emerging on a global basis, setting up a real growth slowdown. That we candidly don't know how that plays out, and that's the the, you know if there's one thing that I would emphasize for people about recessions, we tend to treat them or we tend to talk about them as if they might be good and necessary things. They very well might be necessary, but once you enter into a recession, you really don't have control over how things work out, right? It becomes very much a dynamic of, you know, entering into a regime where you jumped out of an airplane, you're fairly sure your parachute is going to function.
0: So, Michael, if I were to just summarize all that, I mean, it sounds like is your bias more towards taking on some duration risk on the fixed income portfolio? I mean, what you just painted overseas, that doesn't... You know, give me a warm and fuzzy about being allocated to international stocks. and and certainly, if we head into a recessionary environment, you know that's questionable for for u s. stocks as well. I mean, I don't want to paint with a broad brush brush, but just high level, where's your bias in terms of where to be allocated right now?
1: yeah, so 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 we have been increasing our bond allocation. and I would emphasize that even in a day like today where you saw inflation beat expectations fairly significantly, And bond prices begin to reflect an even more hawkish Fed. If I look at what's called the forward market in rates, it's suggesting that the Fed is actually going to be cutting more aggressively in six months than was being priced in um, even just a few days ago, right? Or even yesterday, to to put it in perspective. What the bond markets are really saying is not that um, Powell is by choice going to reverse this, right? So you hear a lot of discussion around the components of the Powell pivot. What the bond market is saying is is we're going to break something, and then we'll be forced to respond. It's not going to be by choice. It's not because they're going to change their mind and suddenly decide everything is copacetic. Bond markets are reflecting the idea that a crisis is emerging, right? Um, that we're going to see something really unfortunate begin to happen. Now, one of the interesting things you mentioned is that doesn't give you a warm and fuzzy feeling about Europe, et cetera. I certainly would echo that. The other component that you know, those who are aware of my work may be familiar with, you know, I spend an awful lot of time talking about the impact of passive investing and how that changes systems. In particular, one of the things that happens with passive investing is as long as money is going in, because of the mechanical components of it, you're essentially operating under a really simple model that says, if given cash, then you buy. If asked for cash, then you sell. And that creates conditions under which valuations could continue to rise, even into conditions that look absolutely terrible. And So markets begin to increasingly disassociate from the underlying fundamentals. I'd broadly argue that that's what we're actually experiencing, right? So we're seeing US equity markets apparently shrug off. And they come to use very simple language. When I think about that dynamic and I think about international stocks, one of the great ironies is is that even though they are cheaper, they are less exposed to these factors. Passive has a much greater share in the United States than it does elsewhere around the world. That higher share gain creates an exponential curve, effectively like you're running a marathon. If you press the hill first, you gain an advantage because you're heading downhill. The U.S. is in an environment in which the choices that we have made in terms of the structure of our market contribute to rising valuations. We see much less of that in the rest of the world. So, again, this is one of the perverse components of constructing this portfolio. I want to be able to tap into that, and in the same way, I want to do that in a very risk-limited way. All right. There are tremendous risks associated
0: with it. I'm going to tell you right now, we're going to absolutely have to have you back on the podcast to drill into that particular topic. I know it's something that uh, is near and dear to your heart, the rise of passive uh, investing. I'd love to, to have a little bit of a debate there, but uh, I thought well articulated. I, I do want to uh, close with a question that I know within the ETF space, this comes up quite a bit with asset allocation ETFs. And the, the the way that I would lay this out for you, Michael, I think uh, w- one of the biggest challenges with asset allocation ETFs is getting advisors to use them. And, mm-hmm. you know, even if an advisor knows that, let's say an ETF like FIG might be a better solution, a lot of advisors don't want their clients receiving a statement that has one ETF on it, or even just a handful of ETFs, right? They feel like, they need to uh, justify their value, justify their fees. Now, I personally think there are other ways an advisor uh, you know, can and should go about justifying the, their value. But I'm just telling you, this is a big hurdle for asset allocation ETFs. So I'm just curious, how will you and, uh, and Simplify try to overcome that particular uh, hurdle? Well, so I think that there's a couple
1: of components to that. And again, I would go back to the significant changes that have occurred with the derivative rule. So... Historically, if you were to run a 60-40 portfolio consisting of, you know, I'm going to buy a low-cost ETF to gain access to the U.S. equity markets, and then I'm going to buy a low-cost ETF that provides me with access to the bond market, and I'm going to package those together, there's really nothing innovative that's occurring within that. What we're able to do, because we're now taking advantage of the derivatives market, I'm able to give 150% 150% sort of exposure, right? So I'm able to incorporate leverage into a portfolio. I'm able to incorporate a risk-limited exposure because I'm using derivatives in these structures. I would just simply argue that the traditional asset allocation frameworks have not been compelling enough and not been um, what I would broadly describe as containing idiosyncratic factors that would allow a advisor to justify why you should be doing this. The second component is I would never encourage anyone to allocate hundred percent of their portfolio, this type of product, but one of the unique things, and again, this goes back to the active management component, as well as my background, what we're really trying to do is give that core portfolio and then also incorporate some derivative trades that give us unique one-off exposures. So things that could go fantastically in our favor, a very convex payout, for example, we're trying to identify those opportunities and we reserve give or take 5% of the portfolio to take advantage of those idiosyncratic opportunities. So in many ways, it, it, it could be a, um, a product that behaves in an unexpectedly positive fashion when we have sell-offs like we're experiencing today, for example. And again, I would just argue that that's broadly within the ethos of what we're trying to accomplish at Simplify.
0: Well, Michael, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. Again, a a real pleasure connecting. Best of luck to you on the uh, ETF, and thank you for joining me this week.
1: Absolutely, my pleasure. I look forward to coming back and talking about other topics
0: with you. That was Michael Green, Portfolio Manager and Chief Strategist at Simplify Asset Management.